love that song. It's a gym, uh, a hidden gym, uh, I think, but it is in our canon. And I love that last verse uh, that for all of us who are in Christ, there is coming a day when hope will change to glad fruition, faith will change to sight, and prayer will change to praise. And that's a great thing for us to look forward to. It is, it is truly not a cliche to say that it is a blessing to gather. I, I normally, or you're here, Lonnie, get up here and say that it's a blessing to be with you. And it's true. It's not just a pastoral preacher thing. That's really true. It is a blessing to be here. We're in one of those songs. I, I, I closed my eyes and just listened to you all sing. And um, for many years, we've been encouraging us to sing. Um, and uh, I heard that this morning. And it's a blessing to hear uh, the saints singing. So um, we are here because of God's mercy and his kindness. None of us deserve to be here. Uh, you heard that in Craig's prayer. Uh, we are late, uh, laden with sin, uh, yet because of God's mercy, we are here this morning. So welcome. Welcome to the blessing that it is to gather. Uh, if you're visiting, uh, my name is Trey Russell. I'm the associate pastor at Four Corners, and the last few weeks we have been in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, we look forward next week, uh, this is going to be our last week in Philippians for now, and we look forward next week when uh, Lonnie returns to the pulpit and we dive headlong into Exodus. Uh, that will be our next venture. Uh, we, don't, we don't change series often, uh, so as we move into Exodus, that uh, will probably be the uh, the only time we change series in the next couple of years. So I hope you look forward to Exodus. And um, if you have started coming in the last, I don't know, month or six weeks, uh, there's not normally this level of attrition in the pulpit. I was here, and then you may have seen Tony Carter here, and then I'm here again, and then Lonnie comes back next week. Uh, that is abnormal, uh, but it's uh, the time when we finished Romans to give Lonnie some time off to prepare and to rest uh, before we start Exodus, uh, that's what you've seen for the last month. But next week, we start a bit of a more uh, consistent schedule, Lord willing, as we dive into Exodus. If you're, if you're part of Four Corners or you, you've been with us for a while, I, I hope you've been preparing for that. Maybe you've been reading uh, the last bit of Genesis to remind yourself. If not, I would, I would maybe suggest starting with the story of Joseph in Genesis and just reading the last dozen chapters or so to, to prepare for where we will pick up next week. Uh, or maybe uh, read the first uh, few chapters of Exodus just to remind yourself of where we will be in preparation for that. But today, the Lord has us once more in Philippians. You know, every week when the, the, the text is preached, there's something supernatural that happens. So the Lord has orchestrated for this text to be preached to this people on this day, and that will never happen again. This text will never be preached to this people on this day again. Uh, everyone comes to the, the, the corporate worship service either carrying things on their shoulders or in a certain mindset or with a certain headspace. And you will never hear this text on this day with these people from the Lord in that mindset ever again. This is the only time it happens. You can listen to the podcast next week, but it won't happen here again ever. So my encouragement to you is to take advantage of the providence of God and having you to hear this text, not that there's anything special about this text on this day, 
But in, in God's providence, you are here on this day with these people to hear this text in the, mind, in, the, in, the, in the mindset that you came in here with. So take advantage of that and sit under the word that God has for us. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I mentioned last week that the chapter break between Philippians 1 and 2 is, is kind of unnecessary. Uh, it's, it's there, but, but as far as Paul's argument goes, we can, just, we can just kind of forget that there's a big, fat, bold 2 there because Paul is in the same mindset. In the previous text that we looked at last week, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul has appealed to a proper citizenship. He contrasted the, the citizenship that those living in Philippi would have, would have thought about first, being citizens of Rome, because Philippi was a, a Roman colony. And Paul, Paul says, look, don't, don't worry about your Roman citizenship. You belong to another kingdom. You belong as citizens of heaven. And he says in chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where you belong Christians in Philippi, not here in Rome, ultimately, but in heaven. This is what he calls the church in Philippi to be about, to live worthily of this otherworldly kingdom. And if they live according to that kingdom, to the otherworldly heavenly kingdom, it will make them noticeably different than if they were to live according to the kingdom of this world. In such strange living in the eyes of the world invites opposition. That was the situation in Philippi, that they're, they're living properly as citizens of the kingdom of heaven makes them under assault. They were, they were under assault from pagan opposition. And so he encouraged them, because you are under assault, because you are living worthily of this other kingdom, stand firm in one spirit. With one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and don't be frightened. And in this situation, there is need for perseverance from outside opposition. But God has given this opposition to them as a gift. That's where Paul ended. That this suffering that the Philippians are going through, however intense, we don't really know, but there is opposition and it's been given to them as a gift. It's an opportunity for them to be further identified with Jesus. And any chance we have to look more like Christ is a gift. It's a mercy. It's a grace. So as the Philippians persevere worthily in the Spirit by faith, they demonstrate to the world where they belong. As subjects of another king, citizens of another kingdom. And we live the same way. So that's what we saw last week in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And we remind ourselves that we likewise are subjects of another king, citizens of another kingdom kingdom and we live worthily of that kingdom so if you would now stand and let's turn our attention to what Paul has to say next in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 we're going to start reading in verse 27 of chapter 1 this is the word of the Lord 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility can count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I'm going to read verse 5 too. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Take a seat. God, would you perform the miracle now that we need to hear this text? On our own, we don't get it. We don't, we don't appropriate this to our hearts. We don't apply it well. We, we need you now. So I ask that, God, that as we sit and we, we sit under your word, myself included, that you would do the miracle we need to hear this text, what we need to hear. Would you do the same in the hearts of our children who are studying Deuteronomy this morning and in hearing the, the truth that the Lord our God is one and the call to love you with all of their hearts, their souls, their minds, and their strength. What a foundational text, God. Would you work on their hearts this morning as they hear that? We love you. We're grateful for this word and for this time. And we ask now that by your spirit, you work in us. Amen. Well, as Paul continues to write in, verse, in chapter 2, the, the appeal to proper citizenship is in view. And let me just say, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, I realize the word citizenship is not in the text. But when Paul said in chapter 1, verse 27, to uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, what he's saying literally is live as worthy citizens of the gospel. That's, that's the literal, that's the literal uh, translation of what he's saying. So that's where the idea of citizenship comes from if you didn't hear that last week. And that's still in view here. As we move forward into chapter 2, we're still under the, the umbrella of be citizens worthily of the gospel. Previously, as I said, he appealed to citizenship in the face of external opposition. Live as, as citizens worthy of the kingdom of heaven, even as the kingdom of this world opposes you. That's where Paul was last week. And in today's text, Paul's continued appeal to citizenship comes in light of the potential danger from within the church. 
Last week, Paul acknowledges the opposition that comes from without. And today, Paul recognizes the danger that comes from within. That danger from within is the potential for division and strife and factions and sects. These are nasty little words to hear of the church. We recently heard an appeal at the end of Romans in chapter 15 where where Paul was appealing to them to protect against these things. In Romans 15 verse 5, Paul wrote, Live in harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are dozens of these kinds of appeals in the New Testament towards unity in the church. Here's two. Both of these happen to be to the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that, that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, Paul writes, paraphrased, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Like I said, there are, there are dozens of these kinds of appeals, and, and the potential for, for strife and factionalizing and division is as old as the church. It was present in Rome. It was present in Corinth, and it's present in Philippi. And none of us have to be convinced that the potential remains for us. All we have to do is be honestly observant of our own hearts. The potential doesn't just reside in others. As you, as you hear this and you think, probably so-and-so really is in danger of creating division. Don't go there. Don't go there because the point is the danger resides in each one of us because in Adam, each of us is, is riddled with this latent pride. And laying down our right to be right is so hard. Everything in us opposes giving the right of way to another. Everything in us opposes that because we are in Adam. So, so the danger for what Paul is writing at doesn't just reside in others. It resides in you and in me. So the issue to which Paul speaks this morning to the church in Philippi is immediately relevant for us, for our hearts. Danger from without, but now danger from within. And that's internal division. And g- given the amount of time that Paul, Paul spends on the appeals to unity, it, it's reasonable to conclude that Paul thinks the greater danger is coming from within, not from without. If the church is going to be undone, more than likely it's going to be undone from the inside, not from the outside. So to address this potential danger from within, Paul writes to the Philippians in these verses of the fundamentals of citizenship. So it's the title of our sermon this morning. 
Paul writes about the fundamentals of citizenship. And I have three points, which are just, which are just quite bare and, and on the surface. If you, if you just give a cursory reading to this text, what you find is that Paul offers a motivation, and then he just very plainly offers the fundamentals of citizenship in unity and humility. So as we walk through this, that's the roadmap. Paul offers a motivation, and then he appeals to unity, and he appeals to humility as the fundamentals of Christian, heavenly citizenship. So let's begin where he begins in verse 1. The, the, the fundamentals, unity and humility, he'll get to in verses 2, 3, and 4. But before making those direct appeals, Paul begins with a motivation. Really, he begins with the motivation for, for exhibiting the fundamentals of citizenship. So he offers this in verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy, what we have here is, is Paul is starting an if-then statement. You guys know what this means. If it is raining, then you should bring an umbrella, right? But he strings together four ifs. There, 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 there's, four, there's four ifs here. I, know, I realize it doesn't say if in front of each phrase, uh, but it's there in the text. If there is encouragement in Christ, if comfort from love, if participation, and so on. And most of the time when we read these if-then statements, particularly if you're a, you're, you're a programmer, these, these, are, these are conditional, right? If something happens, then something else will happen. If it's raining, bring an umbrella. If it's not raining, don't worry about the umbrella. The second half of the statement is conditional upon the first half of the statement being true. But that's not how Paul is working here. That's not how this if-then statement functions. In fact, it's functioning quite in the opposite way. It's functioning to demonstrate the certainty of these things. So when we read if, we shouldn't wonder whether these are true. Paul is using rhetoric to say that these things are true. So then why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he just say, since there is encouragement in Christ, or because there is comfort from love, dot, dot, dot. But I think it's helpful for us to remember, and this, this is, we, we need this, this reminder constantly, that, that Paul is making a rhetorical appeal. He, he is, don't, don't forget, he's, he's in prison writing a letter to people, and they're going to read it, and he wants to get his point across. That's what's happening on, on, on one level. So Paul is making a rhetorical appeal to the church in Philippi. He's not just issuing a lecture. He's not just issuing bullet points of things they ought to do. But the Holy Spirit is making an appeal through Paul so that, so that what he writes hits home to the Philippians. That it hits them in their heart. And, and yes, this is a letter but, but when this letter arrived into Philippi by, by the, hand, the hand of Epaphroditus, either Epaphroditus or one of the elders would have, would have, I don't know if it was a scroll or if it was leaflets, but they would have read it out loud. So this was, this was written in a text, but it would have been heard orally. So, so, so Paul is, is writing in such a way here as to make sure that his oral communication to them hits home. So he uses this appeal and, and I hope the same functions happens with us, that we would, we would be drawn in by the if 
If, the, if, if you find encouragement in Christ, and we would immediately answer that with, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. That's the, that's the intention of Paul here. These are certainties. That's how these four if statements function. And Paul holds them up as the motivation. But it's not immediately clear in these, uh, these statements who owns the action. There's no verb in, the, in these if in, the, in verse 1. So who is doing the encouraging? Who is doing the comforting? Who is participating? Is this, is this the Philippians encouraging one another in Christ and showing comfort to each other? Is it God showing comfort in his love? Well, because these are offered as certainties, it, it suggests that God is the agent here in verse 1. It suggests that God owns the action. So we should, we should read this and think, if you get any encouragement from Christ, and if you feel any comfort from God's love, and if you're united to the Spirit, and, and, and if these are certainties with God owning the action, the result of all of that is to read this in here, there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort from God's love. There is participation in the Spirit. There is affection and sympathy. Therefore, dot, dot, dot. So he offers these as certainties of what has been done for them in Christ as motivation for exhibiting the fundamentals of citizenship. Because of what has been done for you, here's how you should live. And if you remember from last week, this is the same approach that Paul took. The same approach as last week by first reminding them of who they are as the grounds for what they are to do. Remember, the, the indicative leads to the imperative. Being is the grounds for doing. This is how Paul attacks this argument once again. There, there's no question that the Philippians are in Christ. After all, he, he's writing to the church in Philippi. And he's written as much already to confirm this. They're partners with him in the gospel, verse 5. They're fellow partakers of God's grace, verse 7. God has began a good work in these brothers and sisters in Philippi, verse 6. And he said in verse 29 that God has granted them the faith to believe in Christ. So he's already written in such a way as to confirm their in Christness, And now he wants to remind them of that reality as a motivation for how they ought to exhibit the fundamentals of Christian citizenship. And what has been done for them has been done for us. It's the same Christ. So the Christ that, that worked salvation in them has worked salvation in us. So what we're going to do is, is I want to I go through what these, what these things are. We can sit under this the same way the Philippians did. We should, we should hear these motivations the same way the Christians in Philippi did. As, as in, the, 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 the Christians in Philippi would have heard an impassioned plea from a, a pastoral figure as to how they should, who they are and how they should live. So, so I would like for you to hear this as a, a plea from one of your pastors as to who you are and then how you should live. 
We've been given encouragement in Christ. This encouragement includes consolation and strength. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. We have been justified by his blood and now saved by him, that is saved by Christ from the wrath to come. This is what has been done for poor, wretched, miserable sinners like you and I. Christ has, has rescued us from our lowest estate and spared us from the wrath of God. We can forget if we're not careful because we're forgetful people that this is where we all come from. Whether you were saved at 12 students or whether you were saved at 70, this is where you come from. This is what Christ has done for us. If you remember the, the parable of the great banquet, this is Luke chapter 14, verse 21, or chapter 14, and, and the, the parable, there's a man who has invited, uh, thrown a great feast and invited people to come, but the, those who were invited don't want to come. So in verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master, the fact that no one was coming. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And yes, there's a Jew-Gentile thing going on there when Jesus is saying that. But we can't forget that we are the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Is that not encouraging to you? This is what has been done for all of us on our, uh, Paul wrote in chapter one, your first day in the gospel. That's what happened on your first day. You were in the street, poor, blind, wretched, and lame. And he came and gave you the choicest seat at the table. That's the encouragement in Christ. So, so we, most deserving of judgment, we, the weakest, we, the dead in our sins, have been consoled. The weak have been made strong, and we have been saved from the wrath of God. This is who we are. This is the encouragement in Christ. And we stand in the love of God. If there is any comfort from love, there is comfort in the love of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. His love has been poured into our hearts. The love of God that existed into eternity past between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 says, God loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. There's comfort in God's love because it means we are saved from what we deserve and we are kept into eternity by his strong hand. And where there is encouragement drawn from Christ and where there is comfort found in God's love, it is applied by the Holy Spirit. If there is any participation in the Spirit, 
God gives life through his spirit. This is Romans chapter 8, that life in the spirit leads to righteousness and sanctification. And every Christian has been given this fellowship in the spirit. Jesus told his disciples, I'm leaving and I'm supplying you with something greater than if it was just me here. I'm supplying you with the spirit. There's a partnership in the spirit that has a a binding effect, not just binding us to God, that's true, but but fellowship in the spirit, as we've talked many times in Philippians, binds us to one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In the spirit, we were baptized into one body. There's fellowship in the spirit, both vertically and horizontally. And to finish the last if-then statement, there is affection and sympathy, meaning, meaning there is deep, deep affection and mercy from God, buckets of mercy poured out on us. That is who we are. Citizens of another kingdom, saved by Christ, loved by God, connected to the Spirit, recipients of buckets of mercy. So go and live accordingly. If I can borrow a phrase from Paul that he's going to use in in verse 14 of chapter 2. This is what has been done for you. So work out your citizenship accordingly. And if the Philippians follow through, their pursuit of the gospel in this way will complete Paul's joy. This is actually the only verb. This is the first first part of verse 2. It's actually the only verb in this entire sentence from verses 1 through 4. The only verb is complete my joy. It's not the main point. Normally, Normally the main verb is the main point. Not the case here. But if they follow through by, by, by striving after the gospel in increasing measure and exhibiting the fundamentals of citizenship, it will complete Paul's joy. We observed a few weeks ago that our partnership in the gospel with one another is for the purpose of leading to one another's growth in Christ. This is verses 25 and 26 of chapter 1. He, when he was convinced that he would remain, he said... Um, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And what we see here is an appeal from a man whose joy is wrapped up in the spiritual good of others. Is that the case for us? Is it the case for us that our joy is wrapped up in the spiritual good of one another? Because if not, let me just tell you, discipleship will make no sense. Discipleship will make no sense if you do not find joy in the spiritual good of giving myself for someone else's good. Of course, it's what discipleship is. So this is what Paul demonstrates for us. The New Testament often connects joy to the spiritual good of others. Let me just say, the same goes for pastoral joy. 
I think the highlight of our elders retreat a few weeks ago, and we'll hear more about it, the, the results of that retreat tonight, but uh, Mark is here this morning. I think he would affirm that I think the highlight of our elders retreat, uh, Saturday morning we spent uh, two and a half hours praying for you all. I'm praying for, for marriages and for, for sin to be broken and for, for chains to fall. Because this is the joy of the pastor. You grow in Christ. This was Paul's joy. It's when he asked the Philippians to do for him, to complete his joy by, by exhibiting worthy citizenship. So I hope you know that for at least the five elders here, I, I will speak for all of us. It's our greatest joy to The motivation is given in verse 1. The grounds have been established. You have everything you need to live out the fundamentals of Christian citizenship. Namely, unity. This is where Paul goes. This is our second stop on the roadmap. This he offers as a fundamental of Christian citizenship. Unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We've already had a hint in this direction uh, back in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul encouraged the Philippians to be standing firm in one spirit and with one mind to be striving side by side. And he picks up on the same idea here, be of the same mind, be unified. That phrase is an idiom. If you read it in the Greek, it's not just straightforward. It's an idiom. And he uses that same phrase in chapter 4, verse 2, when he entreats Iodia in Suntuke to agree in the Lord. So it suggests that Paul has that situation in mind with these, these specific ladies that he'll mention later. He has that situation in mind as he writes this in chapter 2. You know, we acknowledged this last week. There's a reason that the biblical authors write what they write. There's an occasion for why they wrote. He told them to be firm because there was opposition. He's telling them to be of the same mind because there's division. That's obvious. There was a reason for Paul writing this. Now, we don't, we don't want to vilify these ladies. We don't want to make the situation worse off in Philippi than Paul suggests it is. The tone of Philippians is not like it is in Galatians or 1 Corinthians of, of admonishment. It is a generally encouraging tone in this letter. So let's not make more of that than we should, the division. But based on the amount of attention that Paul gives to this issue, which will extend on in chapter 2, and based on the number of times he makes the appeal to be of the same mind in Philippians, and based on the fact that he brings up a specific situation in verse 4, it suggests that for Paul, this potential for division is a big deal in Philippi. Not because the situation has become nuclear yet, 
but because division in the church is always a big deal. It's a bigger deal than we think. To divide the body of Christ is the work of the enemy. It is. And when we participate in such division, we do the bidding of Satan. If you ever thought this to be of little consequence. So the situation in Philippi seems to have not yet reached a fever pitch. But where the seeds of division exist, Paul wants to work with swift action to root them out. And the seeds of division are rooted out by pursuing unity. It is a pursuit. It's not something that just happens. There's 10 uh, one another phrases in the New Testament that deal with unity. Six of them are commands like live in harmony, be at peace, aim for restoration. And the other four are indicatives that explain the reality. You are united. So from 600 miles away, Paul picks up the scent of division in Philippi. And he wants to remind the Philippians, this is not how citizens live. Citizens are of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, meaning citizens are those who are onward together and have their minds set on the same target. That's what unity is. This is what it means to be of the same mind, to be, to be striving after the same aim. Notice he doesn't tell them, in his appeal to unity, he does not tell them to agree about everything. Unity in the church is not built on a foundation of unanimity in all things. That's not what unity is about. The, the extent to which you agree with the elders on any given issue or the extent to which you agree with one another on any given issue has nothing to do with your being able to be of the same mind with them. It's a very different thing. To be of the same mind, in this case, Paul's already mentioned in verse 27, means to strive after what's the aim, what's the target that we are of the same mind of? The gospel. Verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As a church in Philippi, as a church of four corners, our collective mindset is to have our minds set on the target of the gospel. That's what it means to be in full accord and of one mind. And of course, that's the target. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the whole reason that we're bound together in the first place. Chapter 1, Paul called them partners in the gospel. Not partners in their mutual interests. Partners in the gospel. The gospel creates a unified people. And we celebrate that every week at the close of the service when we take the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing. We're, we're recognizing the fact that the gospel has taken 300 people this morning, however many, and bound us into one. So we partake of the same bread. That's what's happening in the Lord's Supper. The gospel is the thing around which our unity is based. It is the thing on which our minds are collectively set. And in that is found our unity. We are called to this. 
There's a parallel verse in Philippians, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4 that uh, Craig read. This is one of the other walk worthily verses that I mentioned last week. And what we see there in Philippians 4, Paul urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what does he go to right away to explain walking worthy? Where does Paul go in, in Ephesians 4 to explain what it means to, to be worthy of the calling? To be worthy of the calling is with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, being worthy of the calling means eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is not flimsy unity. This is not kumbaya. This is rooted in something substantial, something beyond us, something that we have not created, something that has been created in us. And when that's the case, we can weather all kinds of disagreement. We can reflect all kinds of diversity because the call to unity here is not meant to flatten everyone's point of view. It's not the point. Unity simply commits us to having the same aim. It was exactly two years ago this weekend when the hammer dropped for COVID. It was the 12th or the 13th of March, something like that. All the sports things started to be canceled and we realized we were entering into something new. It was this weekend exactly two years ago. And, and over the course of those last two years, not just things related to COVID, but dozens of issues have given us the opportunity to disagree. Each of those issues have had the potential to sow seeds of division. I praise God that largely Four Corners has been spared from that in God's mercy. And we've all had to come to conclusions on various matters and make responsible decisions for our family in light of these issues. But at the end of the day, as a Christian, first and foremost, we are called to a radical kind of sameness of mind. We are not a group of people with unanimous opinions on every social, political, and civic issue. That's just not who we are. That's not what the church is. So I, I recognize the, the, the apex of COVID has, has passed by largely, at least for us. But, but be assured, there will always be issues over which we can disagree. And our hearts will always be prone to, to getting my way. It doesn't matter if we have a global pandemic or an election or whatever else. Our hearts will always be prone to this kind of danger. Satan will always try to take opportunity for you to use various things to drive as a wedge between us. But we are a people united to Christ and our minds are collectively set on the same thing. And that thing, the gospel, binds us together. So our personal opinions and our desires must take a back seat. And it takes wisdom to know when sometimes those desires don't just need to go in the back seat. Sometimes they just need to be buried in the backyard and forgotten about, never mentioned again. The call to to sameness of mind takes precedence 
over your desire and my desire and my opinion. This call is clear. A fundamental of Christian citizenship is pursuing sameness of mind in the gospel. But I want to make sure we apply this rightly. So let's just remind ourselves this, the, the sphere to which Paul is writing is a local church. Like, like Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, is written to the church in Philippi, to a particular people in a particular place, to encourage them for that church to find their unity in the gospel. So for Four Corners Church, we are a, a particular people in a particular place. We will liberally apply that call to unity to ourselves here. For us and for any local church short of, of grave doctrinal error or gross permission of sin, there's a very, very short list of things that should divide the church. But we can also zoom into that local church. Not just think the church as an organization, that this call to unity is to the church, but it's to us as individuals. So zoom into that local church and zoom into your heart. We're not just talking about church splits. That's what happens when it gets nuclear. That's what happens when camps begin to form around Iodia and Suntuke. And that's, that's why you get First Baptist Church and Second Baptist Church across the street from each other. That hasn't happened yet in Philippi. But, but zoom in to the local church and zoom into your heart. That's really what Paul is after here. He's, he's not after just avoiding church splits. He's mainly after individual hearts. So you could, you could read this and think, well, Four Corners Church seems to be going pretty well. Haven't had anything nuclear happen in eight years or so. So I guess we're doing okay with Philippians chapter 2. We're good. Move on. All the while, your heart might be filled with jealousy and, and bitterness and jockeying for position. Those are the seeds of division that Paul is after. Those are the little unspoken things in our heart that nobody knows that Paul wants to root out. This is a call for us to search our hearts and be honest where these things exist. Because like I said in the beginning, these this potential exists in all of us. So we can zoom in to our hearts. But I also want us to zoom out. I'm trying to make sure we apply this rightly. Written to the local church, zoom into your heart. But let's also zoom outside of the local church. We consider our relationships with other individuals personally we consider relationships that this, or, this, this church has with other organizations. And we have to be reminded. Remember, the aim is the gospel. The target we're striving after is the gospel. So where there is not mutual agreement on the gospel, just flat out, there is no unity. This is not a call to ecumenism. This is not a call for, for a, a tearing down of all the denominations of the world. This is not a call for, for all of the religions to just get along. Obviously, 
Where there is not unity in Christ, in the gospel, and therefore his word, there is no unity. So we don't pursue that. This doesn't mean that we go and and lower our doctrinal bar of what's faithful to pursue unity. It's not what Paul's after. He's writing to a particular local church. So we will, as a church, faithfully and and responsibly come alongside other organizations and other churches. Uh, Craig prayed for several of them this morning. But where there is not agreement on the gospel, where there is not understanding of this, this word, there is no unity and we will not pursue it. We will be ambassadors of reconciliation, like Paul calls for. It doesn't mean we cut ourselves off from the world, but it does mean that this call is not a call to unity with those who jettison the gospel. That's something else. That's called evangelism, not unity. So what is the real threat here? What is the true threat to unity? I think we pretty much understand that it's not diversity. Several calls in the New Testament talk about how we're to find unity through our diversity. In fact, Ephesians 4 that Craig read talks about that. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says there is one body with many members. Everyone's been given a different task. So we have a variety of backgrounds and gifts and experiences. That kind of diversity is not the enemy of unity. I think we get that. And this morning we've established that our differences of opinion are also not the enemy to unity. It's slightly harder to understand because there we're not just talking about what's been given to us as a gift, but we're talking about the way we think and the conclusions that we draw. But that also is not the enemy of unity. The real enemy, the real threat, as Paul explains in verses 3 and 4, to unity is self-centeredness. The real threat to unity is self-centeredness. That's what Paul demonstrates with the call to humility in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I read one commentary this week that said, humility is the linchpin that guarantees the health of the entire Christian community. And it really is a unique distinctive of the Christian life. In the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, humility was not a virtue. It was something degrading. It was to have the mindset of a slave. It was was even, even a derogatory word to have humility. Yet as Christians, as citizens of this upside down kingdom, this is the very virtue we are to have. Definitive of this kingdom. And the best way to understand humility is to observe what Paul contrasts with it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is the same word, selfish ambition, that he used back in chapter 1, verse uh, what verse 17, to talk about those who were preaching uh, out, of, out of envy and rivalry. 
Those who were preaching out of ill will towards Paul, they were doing so out of selfish ambition. Their own glory was the motivation. He also says, do nothing out of conceit. Believe it or not, I actually like the King James word here, is vain glory, empty glory. One who loves the praise of others and acts in such a way as to draw out their praise. But that praise is empty because we're not really made for that. We're not made for our own, we're not made for our own glory. We're made for another's glory, the glory of God. So, so when we try to, to draw out the praise of others for ourselves, it's just baseless. It's empty. And of these two things, Marcus Bachmuel calls them the strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion. Uh, as I've studied Philippians, Bachmuel has, has quickly become one of my favorite commentators because of sentences like this. That selfish ambition and conceit is the strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion. What others think of us is an addictive thought. We all know that to be true. What others think of us is an addictive thought, but it is dangerous. And while these things, selfish ambition and conceit, they sound we, 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 we just naturally recoil to these things. We have something built in us that knows that when we see these things overtly and outwardly, that we, we don't like that. I was watching a show yesterday with my son, and, and the antagonist in this particular episode was a girl who was, who was obviously self-absorbed. That was the point of the episode. And he, he made the comment, he said, that, that's wrong. Something's wrong. Like, I don't like her. She's being mean. So even at, even at six, we know intuitively that this overt sort of, sort of pandering after praise is something that we don't like. But yet again, these things are at work in our hearts, whether they are outward or not. In fact, these are the very sins at the heart of what happened in the garden. Not wanting to be under authority. Not wanting to submit to the one rule that was given. Wanting to set my own standard. Is that not selfish ambition? These things are creeping under the surface of every human heart. Because this is what our hearts in Adam crave. They crave primacy. And they crave recognition. And they crave complete autonomy. We want to be king. They don't have to be outward for them to actually be at work. Paul knows these things are at work in our hearts. They are the real enemy of unity, self-centeredness. So Paul says, do nothing from these motivations. And in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let the needs of others take precedence over your own needs. We could be the nicest, most polite, and proper people. Yet on the outside, yet on the inside, there can still not be this way of thinking. We can be great on the outside and on the inside still not be counting others more significant than ourselves. 
But Paul has to get to the heart of our motivation in order to talk about unity. This is where the battle for unity takes place, is in our motivations and in our affections. Where our motivations are self-focused, being in full accord and of one mind with others is impossible. But the motivations of a citizen of heaven are not self-focused. They are others-focused. So Paul deals with the motivation. He deals with the heart of the matter in verse 3. And in verse 4, he addresses the external action, offering further clarity on how we are to count others more significant. How do we do that? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, let me just say, verse 4, we know this, is not a call to look after our own interests. And I say that because of the word only in verse 4. Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, the word only is legitimate to be there, but it's, Paul didn't actually write it. The only reason the word only is there in the first half of verse 4 is because the word also is there in the second half of verse 4. So if also is there, it suggests that what happened first is already happening also. So he says, don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But the force of this is entirely away from self. Yes, he says, don't look only. But the force, the thrust of Paul is away from self. That's our default position is to focus on ourselves. We don't need to be told to look out for our own interests. This is the basic principle in what Jesus called the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. He knows, Jesus knows we love ourselves most and best. So when he wants to talk about neighbor love, the highest love he can appeal to is self-love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself because you love yourself best. But even that is being twisted today. This week, I, just, I, I, I had the idea to just Google, love your neighbor as yourself. And I couldn't believe it. The first article, the very first one at the top of the page, the headline read, is it psychologically healthy to love your neighbor as yourself? I was stunned. That was, was the first thing on Google. And here, here was sort of the, the thesis of the argument. Implicit in Jesus' comment is the fact that we are called to love ourselves commensurately with how we love others. No! No! That's not the point. Love your neighbor as yourself is not a call to love yourself. Look after your own interests, but look, look, uh, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, is not a call to look after your own interests. The point is, you do look after your own interests. You do love yourself. But humility means overcoming that default to be just as concerned for the interests of others. That is an others-focused orientation that enables unity in the face of disagreement. That is the others-focused orientation that enables diversity 
Humility frees us from being concerned for our own way and our own ambition. It frees us from the compulsive desire to feed me. When we are released from the bonds of self, we are free to pursue this radical kind of unity with Christ, the gospel, as the aim. But we have to leave ourselves dangling here at the end of verse 4. You see, Paul's not finished making his point. And there's going to be some time until we get to verse 5 and following. I don't know when that'll be. But we don't have to wonder about the kind of humility we are called to because Paul is going to tell us that that is demonstrated in Christ. So we've seen here the fundamentals of citizenship as unity and humility. But what Paul does next to illustrate his point is to show that we must look to Jesus to pursue these things. Underneath these fundamentals of unity and humility is the even more fundamental person of Jesus. So next week we move to the Old Testament. There's going to be plenty of Jesus in Exodus, don't worry. We're not leaving him behind. But I do want to leave us, as we we leave the New Testament for a bit, with this hanging reminder that we are citizens because of the person and work of Jesus. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, would you help us to leave here with Christ hanging before our eyes. That he is the the motivation for why we even have to be citizens to begin with. And he is the premier example, as we will see soon, of what it means to be humble And how that leads to our unity in the gospel as brothers and sisters. So I pray, God, that you would give us that. Help us to overcome that default of self-centeredness. To be concerned for the spiritual good and the physical good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray now as we come to, to evidence perhaps one of the most unifying pictures that we have as a church in the Lord's Supper. Thank you for what you have done, and I I pray that as we come here now and partake of this, that you might remind us of the little feast that we take together now points to the final feasting with you and with one another at the table that we don't deserve to be at, 
one day. Amen.